0: Chapter Six of Tales of a Traveler by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter Six The Adventure of the Mysterious Stranger. Many years since, when I was a young man and had just left Oxford, I was sent on the grand tour to finish my education i believe my parents had tried in vain to inoculate me with wisdom so they sent me to mingle with society in hopes i might take it the natural way such at least appears to be the reason for which nine-tenths of our youngsters are sent abroad in the course of my tour i remained some time at venice THE ROMANTIC CHARACTER OF THE PLACE DELIGHTED ME. I WAS VERY MUCH AMUSED BY THE AIR OF ADVENTURE AND INTRIGUE THAT PREVAILED IN THIS REGION OF MASKS AND GONDOLAS, AND I WAS EXCEEDINGLY SMITTEN BY A PAIR OF LANGUISHING BLACK EYES THAT PLAYED UPON MY HEART FROM UNDER AN ITALIAN MANTLE. SO I PERSUADED MYSELF THAT I WAS LINGERING AT VENICE TO STUDY MEN AND MANNERS. AT LEAST I PERSUADED MY FRIEND SO and that answered all my purpose indeed i was a little prone to be struck by peculiarities in character and conduct and my imagination was so full of romantic associations with italy that i was always on the lookout for adventure everything chimed in with such a humour in this old mermaid of a city my suite of apartments were in a proud melancholy palace on the grand canal formerly the residence of a magnifico, and sumptuous with the traces of decayed grandeur. My gondolier was one of the shrewdest of his class, active, merry, intelligent, and like his brethren, secret as the grave, that is to say, secret to all the world, except his master. I had not had him a week before he put me behind all the curtains in Venice i like the silence and mystery of the place and when i sometimes saw from my window a black gondola gliding mysteriously along in the dusk of the evening with nothing visible but its little glimmering lantern i would jump into my own zindaludo and give a signal for pursuit but i am running away from my subject with the recollection of youthful follies said the baronet checking himself let me come to the point among my familiar resorts was a casino under the arcades on one side of the grand square of st mark here i used frequently to lounge and take my ice on those warm summer nights when in italy everybody lives abroad until morning i was seated here one evening when a group of italians took seat at a table on the opposite side of the saloon their conversation was gay and animated and carried on with Italian vivacity and gesticulation. I remarked among them one young man, however, who appeared to take no share, and find no enjoyment in the conversation, though he seemed to force himself to attend to it. He was tall and slender, and of extremely prepossessing appearance. His features were fine, though emaciated. He had a profusion of black glossy hair, that curled lightly about his head and contrasted with the extreme paleness of his countenance his brow was haggard deep furrows seemed to have been ploughed into his visage by care not by age for he was evidently in the prime of youth his eye was full of expression and fire but wild and unsteady he seemed to be tormented by some strange fancy or apprehension in spite of every effort to fix his attention on the conversation of his companions, I noticed that every now and then he would turn his head slowly round, give a glance over his shoulder, and then withdraw it with a sudden jerk. As if something painful had met his eye, this was repeated at intervals of about a minute, and he appeared hardly to have got over one shock before I saw him slowly preparing to encounter another. After sitting some time in the casino, the party paid for the refreshments they had taken and departed. The young man was the last to leave the saloon, and I remarked him glancing behind him in the same way just as he passed out at the door. I could not resist the impulse to rise and follow him, for I was at an age when a romantic feeling of curiosity is easily awakened. The party walked slowly down the arcades talking and laughing as they went. They crossed the Piazzetta, but paused in the middle of it to enjoy the scene. It was one of those moonlight nights so brilliant and clear in the pure atmosphere of Italy. The moonbeams streamed on the tall tower of St. Mark and lighted up the magnificent front and swelling domes of the cathedral. The party expressed their delight in animated terms. I kept my eye upon the young man, he alone seemed abstracted and self-occupied. I noticed the same singular, and, as it were, furtive glance over the shoulder that had attracted my attention in the casino. The party moved on, and I followed. They passed along the walks called the Brugolio, turned the corner of the Ducal Palace, and getting into a gondola, glided swiftly away. The countenance and conduct of this young man dwelt upon my mind. There was something in his appearance that interested me exceedingly. I met him a day or two after in a gallery of paintings. He was evidently a connoisseur, for he always singled out the most masterly productions, and the few remarks drawn from him by his companions showed an intimate acquaintance with the art. His own taste, however, ran on singular extremes. On Salvator Rosa, in his most savage and solitary scenes, on Raphael, Titian, and Correggio, in their softest delineations of female beauty. On these he would occasionally gaze with transient enthusiasm, but this seemed only a momentary forgetfulness. Still would recur that cautious glance behind, and always quickly withdrawn, as though something terrible had met his view. I encountered him frequently afterwards. At the theatre, at balls, at concerts, at the promenades in the gardens of san giorgio at the grotesque exhibitions in the square of saint mark among the throng of merchants on the exchange by the rialto he seemed in fact to seek crowds to hunt after bustle and amusement yet never to take any interest in either the business or gaiety of the scene ever an air of painful thought of wretched abstraction and ever that strange and recurring movement of glancing fearfully over the shoulder i did not know at first but this might be caused by apprehension of arrest or perhaps from dread of assassination but if so why should he go thus continually abroad why expose himself at all times and in all places i became anxious to know the stranger i was drawn to him by that romantic sympathy that sometimes draws young men towards each other his melancholy threw a charm about him in my eyes which was no doubt heightened by the touching expression of his countenance and the manly graces of his person for manly beauty has its effect even upon man i had an englishman's habitual diffidence and awkwardness of address to contend with but i subdued it and from frequently meeting him in the casino gradually edged myself into his acquaintance i had no reserve on his part to contend with he seemed on the contrary to court society and in fact to seek anything rather than be alone when he found i really took an interest in him he threw himself entirely upon my friendship he clung to me like a drowning man he would walk with me for hours up and down the place of saint mark or he would sit until night was far advanced in my apartment he took rooms under the same roof with me and his constant request was, that I would permit him, when it did not incommode me, to sit by me in my saloon. It was not that he seemed to take particular delight in my conversation, but rather that he craved the vicinity of a human being, and, above all, of a being that sympathized with him. I have often heard, said he, of the sincerity of Englishmen. Thank God I have one at length for a friend yet he never seemed disposed to avail himself of my sympathy, other than by mere companionship. He never sought to unbosom himself to me. There appeared to be a settled corroding anguish in his bosom, that neither could be soothed by silence nor by speaking. A devouring melancholy preyed upon his heart, and seemed to be drawing up the very blood in his veins. It was not a soft melancholy, The disease of the affections, but a parching, withering agony. I could see at times that his mouth was dry and feverish. He almost panted rather than breathed. His eyes were bloodshot. His cheeks pale and livid, with now and then faint streaks athwart them, baleful gleams of the fire that was consuming his heart. As my arm was within his, I felt him press it at times with a convulsive motion to his side. His hands would clinch themselves involuntarily, and a kind of shudder would run through his frame. I reasoned with him about his melancholy, and sought to draw from him the cause. He shrank from all confiding. Do not seek to know it, said he. You could not relieve it if you knew it. You would not even seek to relieve it. On the contrary, I should lose your sympathy. And that, said he, pressing my hand convulsively. THAT I FEEL HAS BECOME TOO DEAR, TO ME, to RISK. I ENDEAVORED TO AWAKEN HOPE WITHIN HIM. HE WAS YOUNG. LIFE HAD A THOUSAND PLEASURES IN STORE FOR HIM. THERE IS A HEALTHY REACTION IN THE YOUTHFUL HEART. IT MEDICINES ITS OWN WOUNDS. COME, COME, SAID I. THERE IS NO GRIEF SO GREAT THAT YOUTH CANNOT OUTGROW IT. NO, NO, SAID HE, CLINCHING HIS TEETH, AND STRIKING REPEATEDLY with the energy of despair upon his bosom it is here here deep-rooted draining my heart's blood it grows and grows while my heart withers and withers i have a dreadful monitor that gives me no repose that follows me step by step and will follow me step by step until it pushes me into my grave as he said this he gave involuntarily one of those fearful glances over his shoulder and shrunk back with more than usual horror i could not resist the temptation to allude to this movement which i supposed to be some mere malady of the nerves the moment i mentioned it his face became crimsoned and convulsed he grasped me by both hands for god's sake exclaimed he with a piercing agony of voice never allude to that again let us avoid this subject my friend you cannot relieve me indeed you cannot relieve me but you may add to the torments i suffer At some future day you shall know all i never resumed the subject for however much my curiosity might be aroused i felt too true compassion for his sufferings to increase them by my intrusion I sought various ways to divert his mind, to arouse him from the constant meditations in which he was plunged. He saw my efforts, and seconded them as far as in his power, for there was nothing moody or wayward in his nature. On the contrary, there was something frank, generous, unassuming in his whole deportment. All the sentiments that he uttered were noble and lofty. He claimed no indulgence, he asked no toleration. He seemed content to carry his load of misery in silence, and only sought to carry it by my side. There was a mute beseeching manner about him, as if he craved companionship as a charitable boon, and a tacit thankfulness in his looks, as if he felt grateful to me for not repulsing him. I felt this melancholy to be infectious. It stole over my spirits, interfered with all my gay pursuits, and gradually saddened my life yet I could not prevail upon myself to shake off a being who seemed to hang upon me for support. In truth, the generous traits of character that beamed through all his gloom had penetrated to my heart. His bounty was lavish and open-handed, his charity melting and spontaneous, not confined to mere donations, which often humiliate as much as they relieve. The tone of his voice, the beam of his eye, enhanced every gift, and surprised the poor suppliant with that rarest and sweetest of charities the charity not merely of the hand but of the heart indeed his liberality seemed to have something in it of self-abasement and expiation he humbled himself in a manner before the mendicant what right have i to ease and affluence would he murmur to himself when innocence wanders in misery and rags The carnival time arrived. I had hoped that the gay scenes which then presented themselves might have some cheering effect. I mingled with him in the motley throng that crowded the place of St. Mark. We frequented operas, masquerades, balls, all in vain. The evil kept growing on him. He became more and more haggard and agitated. Often, after we had returned from one of these scenes of revelry, I have entered his room and found him lying on his face on the sofa, his hands clenched in his fine hair, and his whole countenance bearing traces of the convulsions of his mind. The carnival passed away. The season of Lent succeeded. Passion week arrived. We attended one evening a solemn service in one of the churches, in the course of which a grand piece of vocal and instrumental music was performed relating to the death of our Saviour. I HAD REMARKED THAT HE WAS ALWAYS POWERFULLY AFFECTED BY MUSIC. ON THIS OCCASION HE WAS SO IN AN EXTRAORDINARY DEGREE. AS THE pealing NOTES SWELLED THROUGH THE LOFTY AISLES, HE SEEMED TO KINDLE UP WITH FERVOR. HIS EYES ROLLED UPWARDS UNTIL NOTHING BUT THE WHITES WERE VISIBLE. HIS HANDS WERE CLASPED TOGETHER UNTIL THE FINGERS WERE DEEPLY IMPRINTED IN THE FLESH, WHEN THE MUSIC EXPRESSING THE DYING AGONY. His face gradually sunk upon his knees, and at the touching words resounding through the church, Jesu Mori, sobs burst from him uncontrolled. I had never seen him weep before. He had always been agony rather than sorrow. I augured well from the circumstance. I let him weep on, uninterrupted. When the service was ended, we left the church. He hung on my arm as we walked homewards and with something of a softer and more subdued manner. Instead of that nervous agitation, I had been accustomed to witness. He alluded to the service we had heard. Music, said he, is indeed the voice of heaven. Never before have I felt more impressed by the story of the atonement of our Savior. Yes, my friend, said he, clasping his hands with a kind of transport. I KNOW THAT MY REDEEMER LIVETH. We parted for the night. His room was not far from mine, and I heard him for some time busied in. I fell asleep, but was awakened before daylight. The young man stood by my bedside, dressed for travelling. He held a sealed packet and a large parcel in his hand, which he laid on the table. Farewell, my friend, said he, I am about to set forth on a long journey. But, before I go, I leave with you these remembrances. In this packet you will find the particulars of my story. When you read them, I shall be far away. Do not remember me with aversion. You have been, indeed, a friend to me. You have poured oil into a broken heart. But you could not heal it. Farewell. Let me kiss your hand. I am unworthy to embrace you. He sunk on his knees, seized my hand in despite of my efforts to the contrary, and covered it with kisses. I was so surprised by all this scene that I had not been able to say a word. But we shall meet again, said I hastily, as I saw him hurrying towards the door. Never, never in this world, said he solemnly. He sprang once more to my bedside. "'seized my hand, pressed it to his heart and to his lips, "'and rushed out of the room. "'Here the baronet paused. "'He seemed lost in thought, and sat looking upon the floor, "'and drumming with his fingers on the arm of his chair. "'And did this mysterious personage return?' "'said the inquisitive gentleman. "'Never,' replied the baronet, with a pensive shake of the head. "'I never saw him again.' "'And, pray, what has all this to do with the picture?' inquired the old gentleman with the nose. "'True,' said the questioner. "'Is it the portrait of this crack-brained Italian?' "'No,' said the baronet dryly, not half liking the appellation given to his hero. "'But this picture was enclosed in the parcel he left with me. "'The sealed packet contained its explanation.' There was a request on the outside that I would not open it until six months had elapsed. I kept my promise, in spite of my curiosity. I have a translation of it by me, and I meant to read it by way of accounting for the mystery of the chamber, but I fear I have already detained the company too long. Here there was a general wish expressed to have the manuscript read, particularly on the part of the inquisitive gentleman so the worthy baronet drew out a fairly written manuscript and wiping his spectacles read aloud the following story End of chapter six recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida